Hi everyone, it's Joaquim Makren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this podcast episode, I'm speaking with John Radoff, the founder and CEO of Beamable, a company that enables game developers to launch live service games. John has been in gaming for ages and has founded several startups in the gaming space. In this discussion, we talk about what John learned about company building from his previous company, Disruptor Beam, and what John thinks is happening with all these buzzwords in gaming like the metaverse and where that is leading the industry. And there's so much more there. Uh, here's my discussion with John Radoff. All right, we're recording. Hey, John, so good to have you on the podcast. How are you? Glad to be here. Really good, really good. Uh, I, I wanted to get you to tell a bit about yourself and your background, like in a three-minute summary of how, how you got into gaming and what you're doing right now. Yeah, so what I'm doing right now is running a company called Beamable, and, and our mission is to just make it super easy to launch an online game, take the technology out of the equation so that it ends up being more creative. But how I started down this road, I suppose you'd have to go all the way back to when I was a kid. My father worked for a mini computer company called Digital. And over the weekends, I'd get plopped down in front of a VT100 terminal and do programming on a mainframe. This is going back to when I was like seven or eight years old. So I ended up having two loves as a kid. One was Dungeons and Dragons and one was computer programming and somehow managed to put all those things together. By the time I was in high school, I had made a couple of commercial games. I'd made a, a bulletin board system, kind of like a forum program. So I'd been doing that and then, you know, went off to college, wasn't there for too long. Uh, I met my future wife in an online game and we were sure that we could make a better game than the one we were playing together. So ended up dropping out of college. She moved across the country. We started a internet-based gaming studio called Novalink and, and launched a game called Legends of Future Past, which is kind of like a mud, not technically a mud, but kind of in that multi-user dungeon genre. So I did that for a few years. Everything in my life has been kind of the intersection of creativity and technology is how I think about myself. So I, I went from that to, to making a company called ePrize, which was a creator platform for the web. So you think of it as like blog and wiki software, things that just made it easy to create content online, right? So kind of you can see sort of the through line from that to what I'm trying to do now in games. Started another company called Gamer DNA and did that with my current co-founder, Trapper Markels. We, we got access to all the real-time data off of the Xbox platform. You could never get a deal done like this now. Like there's GDPR and all these other things. But back in the day, we got a real-time feed of like all the achievements being earned by every player on the Xbox. And there's a lot of things you can do with that. You could look at, you could build profiles of players and use it to recommend things to them. You could take the data and give it back to game companies to help them make better games. You could build a ad network around it. And we kind of experimented with all of those. The, the revenue ended up being an ad network company. And so I did that, sold that to another company called Live Gamer. 
then got the crazy idea of going back and making games again. So I started Disruptor Beam. What it became was a little different than what it started as. I, I really had this idea of making very immersive story-based games where you'd really interact with the story and meet and connect with other people through games. Like I met my wife in an online game, like I said. So I was like, could we make games like that, which really forge those strong social connections between players? And we wanted to do this in a place that had never been done before, which was, you know, social network games, mobile games, rather than like traditional PC games. What we discovered is that people on those types of games have very short attention span when they come in. So the real thing to overcome is if you want to provide that experience, you got to hook them early. And the way we figured out how to do that was through licenses. So we built uh, the first online game based on Game of Thrones, got to work with George R. R. Martin, ended up working on a Walking Dead game, worked on a Star Trek game. So the Star Trek game, Star Trek Timelines, very successful game, still operates today. We ended up selling that to Tilting Point because I was interested in solving what I saw as this big problem across the whole industry that we were referring to earlier, which really just comes down to like the thing that's super hard about games. There's a lot of things that are super hard about games, but amongst them is you solve a lot of hard technology problems and you also solve a lot of hard creative problems. That's sort of what's interesting about it. That's what brought me into it. But I also think it's what's a little bit broken about it. Like it should be much more about the creativity and the fun factor and the expression, expressiveness of your game design, less about just wrangling tech. So the idea of Beamable which I just got super focused on was to solve that problem. So that's what I've been doing for the last couple mm -hmm. of years now. So that's the no, life story. Yeah. I've actually had a, a chat today with a couple of founders here in Europe who are setting up an MMO studio uh, and they're, they're planning to build everything from scratch. And I was like, I was thinking like, okay, yeah, it, this is going to be expensive, hard, <laughs> so many things. That's going to be tough there. Yeah. Now that you're talking about, you know, solving those kind of issues. like Yeah. The, th the market has changed for this. And this is the thing that I think people are now starting to realize, which is, first of all, game developers are amazing builders, tinkerers, hackers. Like we love to just get in and understand how stuff works. And, and then we love building it. That said, the market has changed. Your customer has changed and customers are more demanding. They have more options. You may have to scale up to a very large population of players right out of the gate with a game. So all of those things kind of conspire against you somewhat as a game developer in that like security, scalability, reliability, workflow within your studio, all of these things become much more important than they might have been just a few years ago, because you've got to make a very efficient process for your developers that delivers the fun factor the player is looking for. And then when you ship and launch that game, it's really got to work and it's got to scale up to as big as it needs to be. And that, and, and on top of all of that, like it's harder than ever to even recruit these people. So all those DevOps people, those server engineers, the, the tech hackers who would be building a lot of this stuff for you in the past, like it's very challenging to recruit those people. They're now going to, you know, all kinds of big tech companies, SaaS companies, and, and, and we as an industry compete 
with all of these other software companies. So I think it's important for people to think about the overall productivity of your process and really focusing on the differentiating factors that will really improve your success as a business, as opposed to just working on the undifferentiated technology that, by the way, also is super hard to get right, to get it to scale, to make it reliable. Yeah, definitely. And let's come back to Beamable a bit, bit further sure. here. I wanted to hear your key takeaways and learnings from your experience of building Disruptor Beam, something you can share with the aspiring gaming entrepreneurs out there. You know, the, the, I think the number one lesson I have from, the game, from building games, which I've now done a lot of times. I've shipped games to like 20 million users. And I've had games, obviously with those kind of numbers, I've had some stuff that has done well, but I've also had stuff that just hasn't worked at all, frankly. The thing the game industry will teach you is humility. And if you don't have humility when you start building games, you will eventually have humility because it's only a matter of time before you find out that your, your brilliant idea, your beautiful idea just doesn't resonate with a large enough audience to become commercially viable. Because you look at the intersection points of success in this industry, we, we just talked about a couple of them, right? So part of it is getting the tech work, making sure it works. Another aspect is the creative experience of it, the fun factor. There's a whole other competency about how do you get it in front of a market, make it scale, have enough people playing, turn that into a growth flywheel that brings enough revenue in for you to continue funding not only that game, but whatever your future aspirations are. All that stuff is incredibly hard to get right. And more often than not, you don't find the intersection, right? So look at you know classic stories of the industry like Supercell, the first few games they made didn't work until they had Heyday. You know, Rovio, like I forget, dozens of games before they yeah, ended up yeah. having. I think it was 50, 50 what they're quoting, like five yeah. zero. So 50 or 40 or 10. Yeah. Like, tell me 10. Like, that would be a lot. I don't know how you get the runway to even do 10 games that didn't quite work. So, mm. that's really the lesson there is like humility, realizing you don't know everything. And then if you approach it that way, you sort of start to expect failure and incorporate failure into your process as a set of learning experiences that you will grow from as opposed to the sky is falling. And that's the main thing I tell game entrepreneurs is like humility and then give yourself runway, right? Because you're going to need runway. Your first idea may not work. Like, I think it's important to understand your audience. Like, I, I think it's more important to understand your audience and a kind of player that you really have this visceral connection to that you feel like you can delight. Because the audience probably isn't going to go away, but the particular game manifestation that satisfies that audience and can scale out, that may end up being something different than you initially thought of. And, and I find people just kind of fall in love with their idea instead of falling in love with the audience. Yeah. And that's again, where humility comes in. Maybe that audience doesn't love the idea as much as you did, but if you love that audience enough, you can eventually figure out a way to get them the kind of game experience that's gonna deliver the emotional response and the long-term engagement that, that really works for them. There's like a few companies that do these audience researches where they do surveys and they come up with what is your audience like? And then I see a lot of developers coming to me and saying, hey, I don't really know how actionable this is. But what I'm, what I'm thinking about 
is okay now you at least have something you can work off from and build stuff for these people specifically not about like what was the game that you were thinking about but like focused on certain needs that have been identified at least and you have a shot maybe of hitting something yeah that's right it's not entirely quantitative though like you're you're not going to survey your way into the perfect game either like i i think it comes down to a certain amount of visceral understanding of that market like do you play those games do you understand that player do you understand what they're really getting out of it so games are these really interesting structures in that as a player you only really observe the surface of the yeah. game right like we were talking about earlier like one one part of the game you don't see is all that technology that really enables it and guess what? The player doesn't really care about the technology anyway. They only care about this. They don't care what language you wrote it in, for example. They care what the surface is. They don't really care if it's Unreal or Unity, for example. They care what the visual experience is like, but they don't care what the engine is unless they work in the game industry. And then they're curious about that. But also the design is like that too. All of the building blocks underneath that surface area of how you thought about progression, like what was the storytelling of the game and how does that narrative live on within the structures of the game? That doesn't often come from just sort of cloning an existing game. I know there's a whole cottage industry of fast followers and just sort of take the idea and replicate it. And some of, of course, there's going to be examples where that works well, but for any game with real substance behind it. And in my experience, like there's a whole sort of hidden architecture behind the game that unless you built it up kind of from a love, a visceral understanding of the audience and the kind of experience you want to deliver, the surface ends up being shallow rather than deep. And if you want a game that's going to deliver fun for people for years, which that's what's actually interesting about the time we're in now, which is you can make a game that has years and years of life to it, maybe even decades of life to it, if you figure out how to crack the code on the audience, the engagement, all of that stuff. But that's never going to be like this shallow layer. So take the time to really understand it and know that audience better than anybody else. Like if, if someone was pitching me on a game and they said, I understand this audience or this kind of player better than anybody else. I'd find that way more exciting personally than them telling me, I don't know, they know how to build the world's best RTS game. Tell me you understand the best RTS player in the world. And now I get really interested. Yeah, that doesn't come ever up in pitch decks, to be honest. <laughs> Zero. All right. So you, we just gave everybody a cheat code. So so yeah. now you're gonna see a you're gonna see a wave of pitches over the next couple of months yeah. where where people yeah. include that. But by yeah. the way, it's it's something you should do. I would include it in a pitch deck. I I think that you know that gets down into personas and psychological drivers. Like why will someone really gonna yeah. stick with it? Like games can yeah. change your life, right? Like yeah. games actually do change someone's life. They will yeah. incorporate it into their life as a hobby, as a lifestyle, as something that they'll stay engaged with. Tell yeah. that story. Yeah, I think the the bold approach of saying that, you know, we, we've nailed down the player. <laughs> like we really know this player and this is what we're going to do. That would be like really, really something else. Yeah. That said, humility too. Like you probably yeah. don't know 100%. Sure. Give yourself some room to learn as well. Right? Mm. 
because re- the, the player is not, I have, I have a love and hate relationship actually with this idea of like, there's people who are like, make a game for yourself. There's people who are like, no, you are not the customer. Don't make it for yourself. This is a debate that goes back and forth. It, in some ways, it's like a cognitive dissonance that I think you have to embrace. Like you have to be able to love the kind of game that you're making, want to play it because that forces you to, on the path of crafting the game in a truly authentic way that's deep. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you got to be able to step outside of your own tastes and kind of think like a market as well and think of different kinds of personas, different kinds of players that will engage with that. So I think that's the mark of really good designers is that they can kind of jump between. I mean, there's other things about great designers, but that's one of the aspects of great designers is to just be able to like embrace the craft and love exactly what you're building while also separating yourself from it and understanding how different customers are going to approach it. Uh, Wanted to ask about the IPs that you worked with, like myself as well with Next Games, where we had a bunch of IPs, including also The Walking Dead and several others. (laughs) There are a lot of us us who took a swing at Walking Dead, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's part of the problem of IP, actually. I know, I know. That's one of the challenges. But what, what else comes to mind regarding like working with the external IP? There's, you know, there's pros and cons. What are the challenges? What do you think? So there's a lot of variables. When we built Game of Thrones Ascent, there was no Game of Thrones online game. There were not, generally speaking, any licensed IP games. If anything, the main critique I got from publishers at the time is, oh, why would you want to license Game of Thrones? That's going to cost you X percentage royalty. That's going to that's going to affect your margin and, and like just own the IP, you'll have total control. And actually they have a point, but at that stage of the market, licensed IP was like the wild west. Like if you had one and it was a very notable IP, like a game of Thrones, then you could completely circumvent like marketing costs. So we, we never spent any money. I mean, we did actually spend maybe a few thousand dollars just kind of like experimenting, like would ads work. We could never even ever justify the cost of marketing for Game of Thrones because every time HBO posted something on their Facebook group, we would get like, you know, a thousand users a minute signing up for the game. So it's like, yeah, literally a thousand a minute would be signing up for the game anytime HBO just posted something. So we took advantage of an early ecosystem, which was devoid of IP-based competitors. And we had a very popular IP and it was a totally unregulated ad ecosystem at the time where you could post something in your fan page and zillions of people would hear about it. And you would just like, the numbers just worked, like people would sign up. And then when we launched it on the iPad, that was like getting a venture capital financing, right? Like, so Apple featured us and you know a million users signed up right away <laughs> so like that's there's, so that was then this is now right so i think the challenge and one that started to affect us more and more over time was that you know everybody started doing ip games right so it became less differentiated it so it was more competitive and then you get situations like the one we just talked about where then at a certain point the licensor is just sort of like, 
hey, let me license it five times, 10 times. Like I'll just license it to everybody. And, it, and it's just sort of like for them, the business is about getting like the advanced check. Like usually for a notable IP, you got to write some kind of check up front to get a deal done and some kind of term commitment. They're adding up those advanced checks and those term commitments. They're not looking at like, the potential for royalty growth in, in most cases, the smarter ones do, which leads to sort of how do I think about IP now and what are some of the challenges? I think ultimately it's a very tough business to get true alignment of incentives with everybody involved because your incentive as the game developer is never going to be quite exactly the same as the incentive of the company that's licensing the IP. Because for you, this is your one shot at that IP. You're going to launch that game. You're going to hope it's successful. And that's you. For them, IP licensing is a portfolio. Some stuff is going to work. Some stuff isn't. They really, really want to get those minimum guarantees back, whatever it is that they, that they wrote into the agreement. And they're happy to have people compete with each other, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just a different mindset. And then on top of that, something that I think, going back to maybe entrepreneurial lessons here, it's not just incentives at the company level, it's incentives at the individual level. So remember that the person writing the deal for an IP at that licensor, their incentives are not the same as even their employers. They probably want a bonus check for capturing a big advance fee, right? Like that's what they care about. They don't even know if they're going to be there working anymore in six months. They're off to some other company, right? So their, their individualized incentive is going to tend to be more short-term oriented. Whereas you're going to go and build this game, maybe it'll take you one year, two years, three years for a PC game, a really big triple game, five plus years. It's going to take a long time to build your game. That person's not there anymore. You're going to see two other licensing execs come and go during the life of your project. Then at the end, you're going to try to make a business out of it. So those, those um, incentives are difficult to align. So that said, it's not impossible to align them. That takes a lot of work. It requires finding the right people to do the deal with, the right company, with the right culture, the right values, the right view into how they want to do this, perspective into the, what the opportunity really looks like. If you can do that and you spend the work and you don't rush into those relationships, um, and by the way, you're well capitalized, you've got runway, like you've got all those things, then it can work. But uh, I think just alignment of incentives is probably the most challenging part of licensing an IP for a game. Mm. And, and now things are so different with like bigger platforms, like the metaverses out there, like Roblox having an IP-based game running, but also Fortnite, like all the skins are now IP-driven. Like, What do you take on like that model must like, there's no monetization, right, for, for the IP holder there, or what do you think? Well, every deal is going to be different. You know, I, I think that the vast majority of the time they are collecting revenue from that. Mm. So, I mean, there's basically two business cases that you can make for that. One is that the exposure gained by the IP in a very popular game is worth it to them, in which case what you're really talking about is an advertising model. They're advertising their IP. In the other model, the it's revenue generating for the license owner because they own 
a world beating IP that's already very popular and widely recognized. And they don't really need you to advertise for them. For them, they're doing you a favor. Like they may be pushing customers your way. And if that's the case, they're you know, going to expect some revenue from that, whether it's a fixed fee for the license or some share of revenue. If the skin in your example has something, so it has like a transaction associated. If you have to buy that, then they're going to want to share of that. And which side you'll fall upon is really just a function of who has the leverage in that negotiation. You know, Fortnite has a lot of players. They probably have a ton of leverage to bring to the table for that. If you're trying to let, if you're trying to license Star Wars, you know, Disney's going to have a lot of leverage in that because guess what? Everybody wants Star Wars and not everybody is going to get it. And only this teeny percentage is going to end up being able to even get it and they're going to really pay up for it. Right. So, so it comes down to that. There's different business models. You, you kind of use the metaverse word, which is fun because we could probably have just a whole program talking about what that yeah. word even means. Yeah. But one of the, I think there is this interesting business model around the idea that, you know, games are like a destination. You kind of go to the game and you experience the game. But now we also have this emergence of maybe the avatar is something where you incorporate it into yourself and your own home environment that you craft around you. Your own domain, for example, becomes an environment that you then craft as an extension of your avatar. And if we start seeing a world, which I believe is happening based on what I already see in like Roblox and VR chat and places like this, then my own space, my own self-expression is going to become more and more important in this universe. And then this idea of skins and items and equipment and even like animations and special emotes and sound and like all this other ways that I can express myself in unique ways start becoming more and more and more important in this landscape. And there could be some really interesting business models that we haven't really even fully thought of yet that's going to accompany this. I kind of think of it as like the unbundling of identity. I just wrote a blog post about this the other day. Like we've had the unbundling of music, for example, like you can pull, a, we, we don't really have albums for the most part anymore. I, I mean, I know they actual still, there are these things called albums that are still sold, but for the most part, like the music business is now about streaming the songs and then repackaging them into playlists. So I think of like this new era of digital identity is like maybe a unbundling and rebundling of that. So now I bring my avatar and these different items and costumes from different experiences with me into different places. And that's how I express myself in different games. So I think there's got to be business models around that, that, that we're going to see. Certainly there's like the web three NFT based models and stuff like that, that, that people have started to try to experiment with. My general take is we haven't figured it out yet, but I think that that's an interesting way forward. That affects everyone from licensed IP to game worlds that people have a real emotional connection to, to even just sort of pure self-expression where maybe I make my own stuff and incorporate it into myself. Yeah, I've been following what you've been writing about, like the metaverse. Like, have you have you actually changed your stance on any anything regarding the metaverse as there's more and more players come out and, and there's more you know 
experiments going on. People are learning. They're in implementing those learnings. Anything that has changed during the pandemic? Well, if you go way back, I mean, I read Snow Crash when it first came out. <laughs> that was my first interaction with even the word metaverse. And I was like, yeah, that's why I'm in this industry. This is, this is what I want to build. I had no idea how you could get there because we didn't have GPUs and 3D graphics or anything, or you know, certainly high-speed networking anywhere close to getting to anything like that. But it seems like we're getting close to it now. I guess my main take on metaverse is we're really just talking about the next generation of the internet. We're not talking about a thing. We're not talking about a specific company that's going to dominate what the metaverse is. But I think when people talk about metaverse, they are they tend to focus on a product description or a technology. Like it's going to be Web3 economic interoperability, or it's going to be an immersive VR, which we embody, or it's going to be a creative like building platform, virtual world platform like Roblox is, for example. So they want to kind of put a box around it. I try to take a step back from it. And, and I don't know that I've revised my, my definition of metaverse so much as I have doubled down on the idea that it's a cultural and social shift more than it is about the technologies. Like, I don't think for example, that the metaverse suddenly arrives and it's obvious to everyone just because, I don't know, we have like headsets that are the same weight as eyeglasses in the future with enough battery life to be all day long and, and we can just sort of create things at will. Like that'll be a super cool technology when it comes, but that's not what makes the metaverse. What makes the metaverse is now we've had a couple of decades worth of people growing up in and around virtual worlds and online games and online experiences where the online version of yourself, how you project yourself into virtual space and interact with other people, for many of us around the world, and I include myself, it's that online version, that digital version of ourselves that's actually a lot more important in our day-to-day -day lives than, than what we might think of as meat space or physical space or whatever you want to call reality. So our relationships that we have online are real, like the experiences that we have there are real. It just happens to be in digital space. Now, because we've got a couple generations worth of people that have grown up with that, that's the trend we're on. So I, I see metaverse as more of a culture and social trend than about the technology. If you go way back, I've, I've said a couple of times, like I think of Dungeons and Dragons, actually. That was the first metaverse because we would sit around a table and tell stories and take on identities and it was creative and social. That was sort of the beginning of the metaverse. Everything since then, it's just technologies making it more digitized, more dematerialized, making the time and space aspects a lot less important. We don't need to go sit around that table in person anymore. We can start to do it online through virtual worlds. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at so many of these companies who are thinking about building a place where you can do a lot of self-expression. It's a new environment. And I'm thinking as an investor, like which one of these nails down something that hasn't been done before and it's it's gonna matter in five years like how do you see like all these projects that are coming up which are the key elements that make 
for a successful project, which is a sort of a, a facilitator of a metaverse? Well, first of all, I think games are going to lead the way. The, the whole mm. reason why I talk about metaverse while I'm running a game technology company is because I think that it's the foundational technologies of the craft of game making that enable metaverse. And it's also within the context of game worlds that we're going to discover the designs and the interactions. What I'm really interested in is how the metaverse brings about new forms of social interaction, new cooperation, new competition, new shared experiences in virtual space that are maybe informed by games. But if you look at them, they're not quite a game. I, I think, you know, for so an example of that, I, I think music is a really interesting, super interesting category. And I think it's no, it, it, it shouldn't be a surprise if you think about it for a bit, like why has, why have these massive music concerts taken off in places like Roblox and Fortnite and whatnot. Well, when you're listening to that music, it's, it's not a game, but you're in something primarily created for game experiences, but you're there, you're sharing a space with other people who, who are interested in the same music as you, you're experiencing it. It's different than just watching a recording, right? You're there. I think it, a lot of these experiences are going to get more and more real time, they're going to be in the moment, it's going to be less about like the playback and just sort of re-experiencing, it's going to be actually about experiencing it in the moment. A friend of mine, Lucas Wilson, who runs this company called Supersphere VR, he has this line I always go back to, which is like music is always about this conversation between the audience and the performer, right? That's That conversation is not something that's captured through a recording or a replay, even when the replay is in 3D. So if we can start capturing that dynamic interaction between audience and performer in music, then it takes you to the next level. Where else can you do it beyond music? Is it some form of LARPing or immersive theater or gameplay itself and virtual worlds? And we start capturing real interesting social interactions in the metaverse. That, that's kind of what gets exciting to me. So you know, if I was going to bet on the metaverse for anything right now, I'd still be betting on games that are trying to ignite really interesting, unique social interactions between people and then give people a context for creativity, which is kind of the other vector into this. So if you look at Minecraft, you know, as much as Minecraft is obviously a game you can play, you can go in survival mode and kill ender dragons. It's a creative experience, you make stuff. And then there's modding and all, the whole universe of modding, like Roblox is sort of like, it's primarily the creative environment. It's like YouTube for game making is, is a way to think of Roblox. So you've got all these different environments which are creative, modding is taking off, more and more people are again, growing up thinking of not only their personal expression online, but their creations online. For some people that'll be making a video on YouTube for a growing huge number of people, it's modding, making game content, making things for your friends. So that's, that's the other aspect of this, which is, you know, what's the intersection between the social interactions that I was describing, but also the creativity 
Like what's the next generation of sandbox games going to look like? How do you give people the ability to craft their own world, craft their own town, their own environment, bring their friends into it, use that as a platform for whole new forms of collaborating and, and having fun with each other online. I think it's through that that we're going to discover all of the interesting other applications of the so-called metaverse. Yeah, the the one question that I, I feel like a lot of people in the, the audience would be asking is like, if, like, because there's a lot of free-to-play developers that are listening to the podcast who might be thinking like, okay, there's all these big trends happening, Web3, Metaverse. How should they look at these trends? There haven't been that many like hit games and runaway hits in this Metaverse sector or, or Web3 so that they could maybe follow the learnings and then incorporate them into what they've known from free to play. Have you seen some actionable items out there that some of the, the players have been doing that the free to play developers could jump on and build on top of? Okay. So great question. And, and another example of one, we could spend the whole hour podcast talking about like web three games and what, what, what is working, what's not working, which is most cases. And then, like, where can it go? Let me try to distill it down to a few things. So number one, the problem with that whole market of Web3 games is that for the most part, they're just not good games. Like, so I would focus on solving that problem first, which is authentically make a great game. And I'm aware of several teams that are that are totally doing that. They've got a really capable set of developers and designers who are who are intent on that. But it's not many. Like a lot of the web three games that you see out there come more from people who have a background in, in like playing with decentralized finance, DeFi. Like, so there's sort of like gamified finance apps rather than truly amazing games. Now, I think there's really interesting things within web three that still kind of remain kind of unexplored space. Like how do you create a game which at its core has a creator economy? like really lean into the composability of blockchain and web three, allow people to build on top of it, not just with the game assets, but potentially with the whole application ecosystem that interoperates with it. There's this whole new set of like governance notions around DAOs and whatnot, which could fundamentally change the social architecture of what it means to have a guild. And I'm not talking about like the guilds that are like trying to, fractionalize ownership of assets and then grind away like maybe that'll happen maybe it doesn't i'm talking about more fundamentally the organization of how the you know we talked earlier about that relationship between audience and the performer do these sort of governance mechanisms provide a continuum for that just as another example so the really interesting stuff to me around social structures governance systems interoperability, composability, it all remains relatively unexplored territory for Web3 games. So I would get excited about personally pitches and I see a lot of them because, you know, running a game tech company, I get to see hundreds and hundreds of games come through. And, you know, a lot of them are like, can you also point me towards people that can fund this idea? But like, they're all, you know, I'd love to see something which is trying to lean into that uniqueness of what blockchain actually offers, composability, for example, but combine that with 
authentic, really great, fun gameplay experiences. Otherwise, it's just a computer science project. And, and I think over the last few months, we've seen that people are kind of run out of patience for that. Yeah, for sure. What about like the whole idea of following, building that Roblox for, you know, the next Roblox, the next Fortnite? We're not going to do a shooter. It's going to be something else, but it's it'll have all those components. Like, I don't sort of feel like that's the right approach for the next something like it, it needs to be different right to to drive an audience to these services yeah sometimes people forget that roblox was like 15 years in the making right yeah it took a long it took a long time that's another lesson of the game industry by the way which is perseverance like mm. along with humility have a lot of perseverance because this stuff can take a while some of the guys that backed disruptor beam and now beamable were like the harmonics founders for example you know, like they were a decade into that company before they shipped Guitar Hero. Like they, they had a lot of false hopes, but no one ever gave up hope along the way. They just kept kept at it and kept at it and eventually had a hit, right? So that's, that's kind of how the game industry is a lot of the time. For the first 10 years of Roblox, I don't know that that many people knew about it. Right. Yeah. And, and now everybody knows about it. And it's a phenomenon. Same thing for yeah. Fortnite. Not not as long, but I understand it was like six years in development. So like they they worked on it for a long time. Yeah. So it's hard to reproduce that. Like like you, your business model, generally speaking, as a startup can't be we're going to make something. And in 15 years, we're going to figure it out. Right. That's just not. Like, unfortunately, one could say that's just not really how venture capital works. Like there's there's got to be an IRR built into this thing that, you know, eventually gets capital back into the hands of limited partners and, and gives them a return. Maybe there's maybe there's some better way to solve it that people will think of some way, but someday. But it's it's hard unless you have that growth engine in place to build something that's going to unseat multi-billion dollar companies, mm. unless you're extremely lucky, which happens. Definitely. The game industry is one of like the luck can happen and you can be favored and, and, and that happens to you for sure. And if you find backers who are willing to, to take the risk, like <laughs> go with it. Good for you. Yeah, like yeah. live your dream, but more, I think you got to get the growth engine of your, it, I think the real story of something like a Fortnite is like, what's the growth engine that lets you take those risks, right? You could even translate that out to like, Facebook, Meta, what they're doing, you know, with their own, you know, VR and metaverse ambitions, like th the only reason they can spend billions and billions of dollars for something that probably is not going to create a positive ROI anytime soon is because underneath that is one of the most incredible business growth engines that's ever existed, you know, Facebook and Instagram and what, what like, it's just an incredible machine that generates continuous cash and that that equips them to do whatever they want you know with epic in some ways you know not at the same scale but like unreal engine incredible growth vehicle for epic for many many years now that allows them to reinvest in those long run opportunities that they see out there yeah. so i think you know if you're an entrepreneur and you're dealing with the majority of investors that I've encountered in my life, you, you do have to kind of, uh, it's great to dream and have that vision of where you're going to take it. I, I do think that you want to be able to talk about that, but like 
how do you get to that dream? How do you get from point A to point B is the hard part. And you have to kind of build that foundation that gives you the cash flow that allows you to invest towards the ultimate vision that you're heading towards. Uh, yeah, the model supports building a company. So like it's it's again about the pitch, like what are you actually building that can show traction so that you can raise the following round quite soon. And then when you're at that position, like Epic, like Unity was that they could start bringing in the ads business after they built the games engine. Exactly. And, and, and I mean, but just going to your really specific example, like the next Roblox, the next Fortnite, if what you mean by that is like, I'm going to build the next metaverse because both of them aspire metaverse at scale, because both of those are examples that aspire to be a kind of metaverse, a kind of destination of creativity and social interaction and game aspects, but maybe non-game stuff as well, like music, concerts, et cetera. I don't, I guess the question I'd have in my mind is, does the world actually need another one of those right now, as opposed to maybe the alternative, which is, you know, in the case of Roblox and Fortnite, by the way, love both of them. So this isn't a critique, but they are, you know, they're centralized platforms. They are company towns, in essence, you can move in there and participate and build stuff, but their economy, their decisions, their permissions, their tool set largely determines what your creative expression is going to be. I think there's a lot of room in the world for stuff that's a lot more open and interoperable. And maybe it's more like a constellation of hundreds of companies that participate in crafting the metaverse through tools that work well together, economic systems that interoperate, avatar systems that transport you from one world to the next. Like that to me, a world of like hundreds of specialist companies that build the big important parts of that, that to me is more important than just trying to own like the main competitor to Roblox or something. Roblox is already great at what it does. It's going to be hard to catch up doing the identical strategy, but yeah, say completely. better better production values or better technology. Yeah, completely agree with that. Before we go to the final questions, I wanted to come back to, to Beamable and the mission of the company and also talk a bit about like how you came up with that idea and then pivoted away from doing games to actually doing this company. Yeah, well, my background is a little bit unique in that I've built games, but I've also built enterprise technology and I've built big data analytics platforms. So I've, I've had this really remarkable opportunity. I've just been lucky to, to work within these different, but kind of adjacent industries. So number one, I just sort of did an honest skill assessment of like what I'm good at and I thought that it's the intersection between a lot of those worlds that I could be best at the world at, understanding the technology that enables it, and but having lived the visceral experience of making games for millions of players. So there was that, but I just saw this huge problem out there. Like what's fun about games is it's like part science, part technology, part art, part design. Like it includes all these elements. Like I think if Leonardo da Vinci was alive today, he would totally be a game developer today, right? Because little known fact, like he he actually had these like theatrical shows where he had like the equivalent of animatronic, you know, robots and things, like all these sort of things. Like obviously he would have been a game developer today, combining art and science together. But I don't and and that it's interesting from the standpoint of like thinking of ourselves as like these Renaissance-like craftsmen, but I don't know if that's actually 
what's good about the industry on balance because so much gets lost on the technology. Like there's too many games that aren't going to see the light of day and get shipped to players that are really going to love it either because the technology got in the way or the technology consumed too much of the resources. So you didn't have to have, you didn't have enough creative iteration. Games are going to succeed or fail dependent on whether you make a fun game that reaches a big enough audience. That's, that's kind of the basic formula, right? So to make it fun enough, you know, requires a lot of shots on goal. It's the term I've used before. So like a lot of things that you do aren't going to work both at the game level, the feature level, like all up and down the, that stack of, of scale of the risks you're taking. So the more you can try things creatively and engaging players and whatnot, I think the higher chance of success is. So the, the real mission behind Beamable is to build games faster, build games better, make games that have great features in them that delight customers so that you can take the technology problems largely off the table. And we looked at it as sort of like the problem that exists before you ship and then the problem after you ship. The problem before you ship is shots on goal, having enough resources that you can plow into the creative work, which means having a workflow around all of the integration of technology components that just really works the way game developers work. So we focused a lot on workflow. And then after you ship, workflow continues because you're going to update your game, but you have a new problem, scale. Like, right, if you achieve that other half of the formula I was talking about, which is like get enough of an audience, well, you've got to be able to actually serve that audience. If your game servers fall down, like that's that's heartbreaking. I've seen games actually crash and burn. Every anyone who's been around the industry has seen this. Like the game that crashes and burns with a perfectly good game design, but everything goes down like the day that Apple features them or something. That's brutal. Like that yeah. that is a tragedy that should never happen to anybody. So we want to make those kind of problems go away so that you can focus on making a great game. And and I'm that's just something I'm very passionate about because too much money, time, resources, people get burnt in the industry chasing things that they shouldn't be. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Hey, final questions for you, John. Uh, sure. You have a lot of books there, like I'm seeing <laughs> on this video call. So <laughs> can you mention a couple of favorites of yours? A couple of favorites. Well, geez, you'd have to almost get it down to genres, right? So, of course, I love Lord of the Rings and I love Game of Thrones if we're going to talk fantasy books. But, you know, so we're talking about entrepreneurship. I, my favorite entrepreneurship book is Shoe Dog, which is the memoir by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. There's a million reasons to read this book, but so I'll give a few. Number one, he makes a lot of mistakes. <laughs> yeah. So you yeah. should, it's better to learn from someone else's mistakes yeah. <laughs> than he, your own when you can It also that. took him a while to actually yeah. like make things yes, work. That's another yeah. lesson that totally the perseverance of it, but also yeah. overcoming really hard obstacles that seem like they could imminently put you out of business and nevertheless persevering and just having the determination and the resolve to get to the other side of it. So much of business is about that. Like when you start a, like if, so if, if you're an entrepreneur and you're getting that first VC check in your bank account, I've done this like five startups now, right? So I'm a serial entrepreneur. When you get the VC check in your bank account, the wrong thing to think is I've got it made. <laughs> I've got the money to build whatever I want now. Like 
it just got even harder for you, number one. And you're going to have some really dark hours in that startup. Business models are going to work. Players don't like your game. Game designer who you thought was brilliant ends up being toxic. You can't keep them. Like there's a million things that are going to go wrong. You're going to have yeah. all these dark, dark hours in that business. Yeah. It's important just to remember that like there's only one sort of thing that completely terminates everything. And that's just when cash finally runs out and you literally can't do anything more. But until that happens, you just got to keep trying. And that's kind of like what Shoe Dog tells you. It's like, just keep running, I think is what he says towards the end. Like, just keep at it, stay resolved. And there's other stuff I, I, I won't spoil on, but Shoe Dog also has, a, has an aspect towards the end of like, actually what's important about life and paying attention to what's going on in your life while you're doing all this amazing startup stuff. So I, I highly recommend it. It's not a long read and there's an excellent audiobook of it as well that you can listen to. And I, and I, and I don't get paid anything for promoting it, but I think it's a great book. <laughs> yeah, it is a great book. Great story. Hey, do you have a, a story that shaped you and how you approach your work today? I've kind of had a funny life. I've actually never worked for another company. So I've only been in companies that I started other than a paper route. When I was a kid, I did have a paper route, but you're not technically an employee at the time when I was uh, delivering newspapers to people as a 12 year old, which I don't even think is legal anymore. But uh, I was always just entrepreneurial as a kid. So it just shaped who I am. I don't think I can do anything else. I mentioned I was doing, making like computer games and then a bulletin board system as a teenager. Something I didn't mention, I ran, I, I did magic shows as a kid also. That was something that was creative storytelling expression. And I managed to turn that into a business as a teenager as well. So I don't know, bring, bring a little magic into your life is always something that will pay off in a big way as a storyteller or as a builder in the game industry. But I guess it just comes down to just, just go for it. Like everybody told me I couldn't do any of these things. Except my parents. My parents were always like, oh, you can do anything you want. But everybody else was like, you can't actually succeed at this stuff. So I guess the to translate your question back into what's the advice I pass on, like the vast majority of people reacting to your startup idea will tell you that it can't work. So you're just going to have to know in your heart that it's worth your time and that you're going to do it. You got to tune out an awful lot of that along the way and just go for it. Yeah. That's really good advice. Hey, last question, John. What's the best way for the podcast audience to get in contact with you and maybe talk about Beamable? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter, jradoff, J-R-A-D-O-F-F. I'm on LinkedIn. Happy to connect with you know anybody in the game industry there. Beamable.com, B-E-A-M-A-B-L-E.com. Find us there. We'd love to talk to you about helping you launch your dream game, making it a lot easier for you, let you focus on creativity. Sounds excellent. Hey, John, this is so good. I took like a lot of notes here. I'm trying to learn from you as well here. So it's all good, really good stuff. It was really good to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, next time I'll have to have you on building the metaverse so that, that I can ask you all the questions. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm up for it. For all sure. right. All right. Take care. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. Bye. Thanks again to my guests for joining the show. If you have time, please go and sign up to a newsletter at EliteGameDevelopers.com slash newsletter. Since every Friday morning, I send out a piece on gaming startups, what I've 
experienced recently as an investor, things that I'm seeing and thinking about. I really want to share a lot to you guys. So if you have time, please subscribe to the newsletter. That would be awesome. And I'll see you next week on the podcast. Take care. Bye-bye.